session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Instagram or Twitter, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics for the program, or books for the book club, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I do the summary of the book for the past week, the book for this week is The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts. I don't like, I don't love <laughs> the subtitle there, The Secret to the Love That Lasts, but um, this is a classic book, and I actually have never read the book cover to cover. I've read a lot of uh, parts of it and heard him talk about it and studied The Five Love Languages, but I never read the book, so I wanted to make sure it was one of the books of the week. So I hope you'll join me in reading The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Now getting to the book from this past week. Uh, this book was recommended to me by Sahand. I appreciate again giving this great recommendation. I did enjoy this book, The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. The Happiness Trap, How to Stop Struggling and Start Living. Uh, and this book is based primarily on ACT or ACT, which stands for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Um, and it was the first book I read completely on the topic. I've already started the show talking about things I haven't read about, but there's a lot I haven't read about, including uh, a book on ACT. So it was a very interesting read for me. And even the title, I think, is a good one, The Happiness Trap. Uh, maybe it seems a little bit puzzling. How would happiness trap us or why would it be bad to try to be happy? But that's, in essence, what uh, acceptance and commitment therapy looks at that we are not supposed to try to just be happy all the time but that a the acceptance about accepting what we're feeling and thinking and not try to resist it or fight what we're feeling or thinking um, at any given time so early in the book he talks about what exactly is happiness and he gives two definitions he says the first one is uh, the meaning of feeling good which is a lot of times what people think about when they say happiness. Like to be happy means right now you feel good. You're feeling positive, feeling in a good mood. We always think of that as happiness. The second one he gives, which I didn't think of it this way, and I would use other words for this, but he says living a rich, full, and meaningful life. Sometimes I like to call this fulfillment or contentment or being content. And to me, I've always thought that fulfillment is more important than happiness and that idea of feeling good. So with a lot of these terms, because there isn't always a clear-cut definition, it is important to define your terms so we know what we're talking about. Um, and as he puts it, ACT is more focused on the second type of happiness, this living a rich, 
full and meaningful life. Um, but looking at the happiness uh, trap, why is it a trap? He talks about four myths that help in setting this trap. The first myth is that happiness is a natural state for all human beings. So there tends to be this idea that humans by default are happy. So happiness is natural and easy, and we should be happy all of the time. Um, when this is not true, and he talks a little bit about evolutionarily speaking, uh, we were our brain was adapted to help us survive, which means it had to worry about things, it had to uh, fear things, it had to compare ourselves to other people and see what was going on. There's a lot of things that our brain was evolved to do that weren't all about just being happy. A lot of times it involved not being happy. So this idea that happy is somehow natural and we should always be feeling that way is a myth. The second myth, um, which relates to that one, is that if you're not happy, you're defective. And unfortunately, this is how many people feel when they're sad or unhappy. They think something's wrong with me. I should be happy all the time. I should be feeling good. Um, sometimes they say, well, I should be grateful for everything I have. So how am I unhappy? And so we're even almost afraid to tell people we're unhappy. And this relates to the first part. So I should be happy all the time naturally. And if I'm not happy, it means I'm defective. So we hide our not happy feelings from one another and even try to keep them or struggle with them ourselves, which is a problem. The third one, the third myth he talks about is to create a better life, we must get rid of negative feelings. And this, I think, is a really big myth that has a lot of negative consequences. This idea that we, again, should always be feeling good, that if a bad feeling comes, what we're supposed to do is try to get rid of it. And that's all we're supposed to do is how do I make it disappear? How do I make myself not feel it anymore? Whether it's trying to numb myself, whether it's escaping from that feeling, whether it's avoiding that feeling. But there's this idea that a good life means one without bad feelings. But as he points out, anything that's meaningful in life involves also having bad feelings. Uh, if you want to be in a relationship, of course, it hopefully will make you feel very good, give you a feeling of connection, um, feelings of love, all sorts of positive feelings. But also it's going to come with negative feelings. You get hurt, there's pain, there's discomfort, and a whole bunch of other negative things you're going to feel in the course of that relationship. Or if you want to be a parent, one of the most incredible experiences we can have, uh, people who become parents say they wouldn't trade it for the world. They say it's hard to remember what life was like before being a parent. It's a feeling like none other. But does that mean that being a parent is all fun and joy and happiness? Absolutely not. There's stress, there's loss of sleep, especially at the beginning. There's all sorts of other feelings that get triggered in being a parent that make it very, very uncomfortable and painful, but because it's meaningful, we do it. And so anything really that's worth uh, doing that has meaning is going to be difficult and life itself is difficult. And part of what we have to accept is that life is going to be difficult sometimes. And the fourth myth he talks about that he says contributes to the happiness trap is that we should be able to control what we think and feel. And that's something that people sometimes think, well, why am I upset right now? Or why did I get angry about that? I shouldn't be angry about that. And a lot of times we have a lot of negative feelings about our negative feelings. We get angry at, about, at ourselves for being sad, or we get anxious about our anxiety. And we try to control what we're feeling and think we should have this control when we don't. Can we have any effect on our feelings? Yes. 
But do I have complete control over my feelings and thoughts? No. We have lots of fleeting thoughts. Things will jump into your mind out of nowhere. You'll be like, where did that come from? And we're not responsible for them. We can't just change them. And same with feelings. Sometimes we're going to feel bad and that's okay. And actually we get into a problem or part of the happiness trap is when we try to control our feelings. If I try to make myself feel good all the time, I'm going to try to control how I feel, which means I'm going to use a lot of um, different tactics, control strategies as he describes them, to try to make myself feel happy because I think I have to be happy all the time. And very often, as he puts it, the solution is the problem. If I start to drink to not feel sad, well, now I already have whatever I was sad about. But on top of that, I have this drinking problem that I have to deal with or whatever else that it is um, that I'm using to try to control my feelings. It just doesn't work. So a big part of ACT is this idea that we have to accept our thoughts and feelings, whatever they might be. We shouldn't try to control them. We have to more try to accept them as they are, and that'll help us um, to live a more happy, fulfilling life. Then he describes the six core principles of ACT, of acceptance and commitment therapy, and I'll briefly talk about those. The first one is diffusion. So this is where we actually relate to our thoughts and our feelings, not in a way that we let them consume us, but we create some distance with them. So an example of this is rather than accepting the thought, I'm a loser, or I'm horrible, or I'm unlovable, we tell ourselves, I'm having the thought that I am a loser. I'm having the thought that I'm unlovable. And even in that, it distances ourselves from this idea that it's truth, the fusion. So we're trying to defuse, but we tend to fuse ourselves to these types of ideas or beliefs, and that causes us trouble. We take them as truth rather than recognizing they're just thoughts. I'm having the thought that X, Y, and Z. Doesn't make it true. Doesn't mean it's a fact. Doesn't mean it's a reality. It just means it's my thought. So one of the principles is diffusion. We create space from our thoughts or feelings. The second one is actually making room or space, and it's called expansion, as he describes it. And this means that we make room for unpleasant feelings and sensations instead of trying to suppress them or push them away. And this might seem a little surprising because we usually think we have to get rid of the negative feelings. But here, this is what makes ACT different is that we're actually accepting and allowing that feeling to come in. We're not trying to fight it. We're not trying to struggle with it. Um, he talks about the struggle switch that we can engage where we're trying to control our feelings. We're trying to switch them off and that just leads to more struggle and pain. But if we just accept, you know, I'm feeling really sad right now, or I'm really anxious about what's happening tomorrow. And we actually let that feeling have space within us. We do much better than if we try to fight it or resist it. The third core principle of ACT is connection. And we could also call this, uh, mindfulness or that he says that this is sometimes called connect with the present moment. So this is what we talk about being present, being mindful, and a big part of ACT is mindfulness, including the fourth principle, which is the observing self. And this is the part of ourselves that is constantly uh, what it, we pay attention to. And the observing self, by definition, is not judgmental. The thinking self is the one that has the thoughts and ideas. So these first four core principles all have to do with mindfulness. And so that's part of the acceptance part of ACT. Now the commitment part, the second part of it really is more on living the fulfilling life. 
And number five is values. That's the fifth core principle. And this is clarifying and connecting with your values um, to make your life more meaningful. So to live a meaningful life, we have to know what matters to you, what has meaning for you. What do you want your life to look like? And the values will help guide you to put your life and push you in the right direction. If you don't know where you want to go, you can't get there. So a big part of ACT is also connecting to your values. And lastly, the C part, acceptance and commitment therapy is committed action. So as he puts it, a rich and meaningful life is created through taking action. So that's a uh, part of this type of therapy that I really like is that it doesn't just stop about understanding yourself. It's about taking the actions in your life that will allow you to live that meaningful life, the life that means something to you that is valuable to you. So as he puts it, mindfulness plus values plus action equals psychological flexibility, the ability to adapt to a situation with awareness, openness, and focus, and to take effective action guided by your values. So we get more in touch with ourselves. We allow ourselves to feel whatever it is we're feeling, to think what we're thinking. We don't try to resist it. We just notice it. And this could sound familiar because in meditation, that's what you do. If you're trying to meditate and a thought comes to your mind, you don't judge yourself for it. You don't even get mad that why am I thinking? I'm supposed to clear my mind. You just notice it. Oh, I'm thinking about tomorrow's meeting. And I'm going to try to just let go of it as soon as I can and focus back on my breath or however it is that I'm meditating to get back into that observing self and just come back to whatever it is I'm trying to focus on. Um, and once we do that, we connect with our feelings, we accept them. We also want to make sure we understand our values. What What is a meaningful life to me look like? What matters to me? How do I want to spend my time? Um, what do I want to do with my life? And then related to that, based on understanding our values, we can take the committed action towards making that our reality, living a life that follows from those values. So I really enjoyed this book, The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. I'd recommend it. It's fairly easy to read. Um, I didn't go through a lot of the exercises he talks about in the book that give you ways of implementing the different techniques or the different principles of acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, but I think it definitely makes a lot of sense. I, and I agree with this idea that happiness and this obsession with happiness, something I've talked about a lot on this show, is a big problem when we focus and become preoccupied with forcing ourselves to feel happy, something that we're not supposed to feel all the time. And even to me, that's not the ultimate goal. Um, as he puts it, the second definition of happiness or what I would call living a content or fulfilled life, one that's meaningful to you, that's more important to me than just being happy all the time or feeling good. And if we focus too much on that, we actually end up not living a very fulfilled life. Um, so I hope you'll read this book, The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris, a good way of understanding acceptance and commitment therapy, which um, I found very interesting and helpful. And again, thank you to Sahan for recommending this book. And the book again for this week is The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman, a classic when it comes to love and relationships. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dawakwi. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. In the first segment, I talked about the book, The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. And a big part of that book were ACT, that it describes acceptance and commitment therapy, that A is for acceptance. And it made me want to talk about something that we hear a lot people say, I believe that everything happens for a reason. And we, you hear a lot of people say, I know why this happened, or I was trying to understand why this happened or didn't happen, and now I figured it out. And very often it's connected to a spiritual or religious belief. I know why God did this. Um, and of course, I don't want to get into the religious beliefs that people might have, but I do think it's worth having some caution when we say this to ourselves, and especially when we say to other people that everything happens for a reason. Now, you can believe everything happens for a reason, but the part I have trouble with is when people try to figure out that reason like they know what it is. If you do believe in a God, usually it's some kind of all-powerful God, or even if you believe in some kind of spirit or whatever you believe in, I would hope you believe that you can't know what that essence, whatever it is, knows. You can't know the reason why something happens. Does everything happen for a reason? Maybe. But to think that you're going to figure it out to me is almost um, an act of hubris, pride, where we think we can figure it out. Does it happen for a reason? I don't know. And even, do you know? We don't know yet because even you don't know the full picture of what's happening. You know, people say, I know why that person didn't show up that day was so that I could have met that other person. Well, how do you even know that other person in that relationship is going to end well? Well, maybe even it doesn't end well and you're supposed to learn a lesson from that. X, Y, and Z, we can keep going down that rabbit hole. But to try to understand it, I think, is wasting our own time. Now, very often when we try to think of everything happens for a reason or try to figure that out, it's when something very bad happens. And when we have tragedy face us, we face a tragedy, or tragedy comes to our life, we always want to understand the why. Why did this happen to me? Why did I get cancer? Why did that person die? Why did I go through this pain, this breakup? Why did I not get that job? Why did I lose that job? And we always try to understand a bigger why. Why was there this tragedy? Why did this hurricane hit my home? Something that unfortunately many people have had to experience recently. Um, and we want to get a bigger picture, not just, well, there's a hurricane and it came to your home and it caused this damage, but why would God do this to me? And it's understandable that when things happen that we can't explain and we can't understand, we try to come up with the why. And we can even, people sometimes become actually very religious when something bad happens to them because they feel that need or that desire to have an understanding, a greater purpose, bigger than them, that can help explain why this happened and they can come maybe to some kind of peace with it. But sometimes people also use it to pro project what's going to happen in the future. Well, if I haven't had this happen yet, then maybe there's a reason why and I should give up, or I shouldn't do it anymore. But this is taking out of control what is in your control. In life, is there some degree of luck? Yes, I believe so. By luck, I don't mean that some people are 
lucky and some people are unlucky, but that there are some things that are out of your control in every situation, whether you're applying for a job, whether you're in a relationship, whatever it is you're doing, there's always an element that is out of your control. Now, in Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he talks about the circle of influence, which is the big circle, everything that you care about. And then within that, the circle, uh, sorry, the circle of influence is the things you can have some kind of effect on, and then the circle of concern, which is everything that you care about. So everything you care about is in the circle of concern. What happens to your kids tomorrow at school? Um, do you get that job or not? What is it going to rain tomorrow? That might be all in your concern. You care about that. But then the circle of influence is the areas where you can control it, where you can have some effect on what happens in your life. So for example, when it comes to the rain example, you have zero control over whether or not it rains tomorrow. You can't do anything about it, but you can control whether or not you have an umbrella and whether or not you leave early enough in case it's going to rain so that you still get to work on time. That is in your control. But the rain, that's out of your control. You might care about it. It's part of your circle of concern, but it's not part of your circle of influence. You can't have an effect on what happens. Or this is similar to the serenity prayer, which actually in the book that I talked about today, The Happiness Trap, he talks about the serenity challenge. It's its own version of it. Um, Russ Harris, he says, develop the courage to solve those problems that can be solved, the serenity to accept those problems that can't be solved, and the wisdom to know the difference. And there's a reason why this serenity prayer, or this version of it, which is similar, but why this concept is so important is that there are things that are out of our control. And we can try to give a meaning to it and understand it. But to me, again, that's not going to do us any good. Yeah, we can try to figure it out, but if it makes you feel better, it makes you feel better. But to me, it is a little bit um, almost silly to think that we can understand exactly why, if you believe in a God, God did something, what was in his or her master plan. But it can be good to recognize what you can control in your life and try to understand that, what you can't control. And that's why the, the important part is the last part, the wisdom to know the difference. Because when we try to control things that are out of our control, we just waste our time and energy and end up feeling bad about ourselves and what we're doing. On the other hand, we sometimes don't take responsibility for what is in our control. We have a lot of say in what happens in our life. So when I say I believe in luck, I don't believe in only luck. That I don't think that success is based purely on luck or if you get the job, it's because you were lucky. No, you work very hard to prepare yourself, to prepare your resume, to prepare for the interview, to get the experience you need, do everything you can, and then you go in there and still recognizing some of it is out of your control. But the element that is in your control, you want to take that to the 100% degree and do the best that you can to take care of that the best that is possible to you. So we have to be careful not to, on one side, think we can control or influence things that are out of our control and figure out some greater meaning. And on the other hand, not take the responsibility for things in our life that are in our control. And when people get to this point where they're struggling with something, they're trying to understand the meaning of it, even sometimes you'll see people who never would 
use certain services, use them. For example, fortune tellers or psychics. I've seen lots of people, they're not sure what's going on with their career and they don't know what to do or some other big issue that they're dealing with and they don't know what's going to happen and they want someone just to tell them. And they go to a fortune teller, they go to a psychic and they want someone to give them some kind of news or some kind of prediction. This is actually good what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing and you'll be very happy. In the next three months, I see something is going to happen. Or I can tell what you're doing is not good. You're lucky you didn't even get that job. It was going to end up very bad for you. So just change course and give up on that altogether. And we'll listen because we're just so desperate to have an understanding of the why. And sometimes we have to understand that we don't know why. We can't predict what's going to happen. Yes, you want the job, but can we know for sure that that job is going to be good for you? No, you don't know. We never know 100%. You want to get into a relationship. Do we know that it's going to end well? We don't know. You start dating someone and you think about getting married. Is there a 100% guarantee that it's going to go well? No, we can't give you that. Maybe it ends in heartache. Maybe it ends in tragedy. Maybe it ends in infidelity. It can end any sort of way, or it can end very well. And we don't know. All we can do is make the best decision with the best knowledge that we have at that time. There's no 100% guarantee to anything. And again, going back to what's in our control, you have a big control of how your relationship goes. At least we can say 50% of it is completely up to you and what you do, how you act, how you behave, what you contribute to the relationship, how you work on the relationship. But then the other 50% of your partner is not in your control. Now, of course, you select your partner, so we can say in that way you do have an effect on that too. But once you're in the relationship, how they act, you can influence someone else, but you can't make them do something or make them not do something. So that part of it is out of your control. But again, the part that is in your control, you have to ask yourself, am I doing everything that I can to make it better. And this is where people sometimes lose sight of what's going on. They get into a situation and they focus too much on the things that are out of their control. I can't believe that's happening or this is happening or they did this or didn't do that. And they don't see the four or five things they can do to make the situation better themselves. So rather than focusing on, I'm going to discover the grand scheme and the greater meaning and why things are happening the way they're happening, why are they're not happening, or whatever else it might be, we sometimes have to accept that things do happen that are out of our control. Even when it comes to a diagnosis, every time uh, I've worked with anyone or talked to someone who's got a very bad medical diagnosis, almost always one of the places they go, it's quite incredible, is did I do something that God is punishing me for? Is this because I did this bad thing three years ago? Or am I a bad person? Or why is God punishing me in this way? And to me, that's not what's happening. Um, I don't see it in that way. Unfortunately, illnesses do strike different people. And there's probably an etiology that we maybe can understand or not about why you got that illness and someone else did that, did not. But I don't think of it as it's because there's some purpose or some reason or you deserved it in some way or this is karma. I believe these chance things happen. Just like if someone wins the lottery and it's $500 million Powerball, I don't think it's because God loves that person so much and that's why they won. Um, first of all, we don't even know if their life is getting better. That's another uh, topic of conversation. 
But to me, there's things that are chance occurrences and we have to accept that are out of our control. But again, it's up to each and every one of us to recognize what we have control over, what we are responsible for, and to meet that to the fullest degree and take care of that the best way that we can. All right, we're going into our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Hi, Dr. Farid. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank you for answering. Sure. Uh, I, I just wanted to bring up the subject of gut feelings and the scientific base for that. Um, as you mentioned, the book, uh, Thoughts, uh, what, what Makes Our Emotions, uh, uh-huh. I got the book and I'm beginning to read it. And I'm thinking, what about gut feelings? Uh-huh. Does that have any... Uh, scientific base to it, and if it is, how fast our thoughts can uh, be made at uh, a glance uh, yeah. at, a, at a person and, or at a situation, and we get a gut feeling. Yeah, that's an interesting question in that book, um, How Emotions Are Made. It is a, it's a tougher one to read some parts of it, especially in the middle, but I hope you get through it, because I think it's an interesting book, talking, looking at how uh, we might construct emotions more than just feel them, that it's more complicated than just we feel what we're feeling. But talking about gut feelings, first of all, it's it's hard to define what that exactly is. Because even in that book, it talks about how a lot of our emotion, what we just think of, we think there's something called feelings that's somehow in our brain and separate. It's also related to how we're feeling physically. There's a lot more interpretation going on. So in that book, actually, you're talking about, she mentions how Someone asked her on a date, and she thought she wasn't at all attracted to the person, but when she was on the date, she felt all excited feelings. But then when she went home, she found out she had the stomach flu, and she was sick for a few days, and what she thought was the excitement and attraction she was feeling towards this person was actually the flu bug that was giving her some symptoms that were like butterflies in her stomach. And so she wasn't actually feeling that. So I, I you read a lot and see a lot of things on gut feelings and intuition. Um, and sometimes intuition, I think sometimes we maybe do perceive something that we can't really understand. So there could be something there. But also sometimes intuition is we experience something, but we're not consciously aware of how we made that decision. And in the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, it's been years since I've read it, but I remember he talks about some examples of that where um, there seems to be something going on that the the person synthesized the information even more quickly than they could really consciously comprehend or describe. But in exactly. later later they could figure it out. So there is some things going on, and this is that whole idea in, in that book you're reading, uh, how emotions are made. This idea of logic versus emotion and how we think they're two completely separate things. They really aren't completely separate. We can't tease them apart completely because even when we think we're purely thinking rationally there's emotion always there or feeling and really what is the difference and in that book i i believe she says that emotions could just be another thought it's another way of thinking it's not a qualitatively different thing now another thing i want to mention about gut feeling and intuition you know there's some people that say gut feelings are never wrong 
Our gut, your gut is never going to be wrong. And I think that's a very scary statement because our gut feelings can really lead us in the wrong direction in a lot of ways. A big one where your gut feelings can potentially lead you the wrong way is in romantic relationships. Because very often the person that we are very strongly drawn to, what you might say your gut feeling is like on overdrive telling you to go towards that person, is exactly the worst and wrong person for you to be in a relationship with. Um, mm -hmm. In the book, Getting the Love You Want by Harville Hendricks, he talks about this, how we tend to be attracted to someone who has the worst qualities of our parents. So I very mm -hmm. often see people describe love affairs that ended up being the worst relationships of their lives that were a recapitulation of past relationships, for example, with their father or their mother that they were now having with someone and having this horrible relationship, but they were head over heels, drawn to that person, love at first sight type of a feeling. And so I don't agree with this notion that your gut feeling can never be wrong and that your intuition knows something that you can't know and you should trust it every time. I think it's very hard to know exactly what you're feeling anyway to say, is this gut feeling, intuition, whatever else it might be. And it's dangerous to think that just because it's my gut feeling, if you feel like you really know that's what it is, that I should trust it every time. Mm -hmm. um, I, I completely agree with you on um, all the um, facts that you, or all what you just said. Um, however, um, I mean, this however doesn't mean but. This however <laughs> is just to continue my sentence. Uh, I am trying to figure out uh, this, uh, the book that I just bought, How Emotions Are Made, mm -hmm. and I am trying to put this in this whole gut feeling into um, the fact that this book is talking about. Uh -huh. Everything that goes on in our, in, uh, everything that we think about creates some types of uh, emotion, that we call it emotion, uh -huh. and Apparently, um, with every thought, or sometimes uh, some thoughts more than other thoughts, uh, the hormones or uh, whatever um, uh, chemicals that are produced to protect us or to uh, help us to think better or help us to um, understand matters better, uh, we get surges of feelings, I mean, changes in our body, that we call it emotion. And I think, my, I, I just think, I'm not sure about it, that whatever we think um, that happens, just as you said, so fast, um, it basically uh, comes to a conclusion at a very fast pace. And as you just said, we can't even... Um, you know, uh, be, uh, be conscious of it when it's happening. Mm -hmm. And then we call it gut feeling. Um, is it completely um, untrue? Is it completely unreliable? Um, I personally have come to many conclusions about that, and one of which is not always. Sometimes you wrongfully mm, mm, interpret that gut feeling. Uh -huh. And other times, uh, thinking, uh, ever since I've become more aware of how it could lead me to be, to go to a wrong place, so I have been 
thinking about it and uh, trying to be more uh, aware of uh, the things that could actually involve the interpretation of the moment that I see that person or that situation and I get this surge of whatever emotions and then those emotions are not necessarily bad emotions. It's just uh, something is talking to me. Something is making me to be aware of that particular situation I'm in uh-huh. at, the po- at the at the time. Yeah. So I don't allow it to make me. Uh, I, I don't allow it to um, to just affect my uh, my uh, decision at the moment. So right. I'm just and aware of it. Right. So I want to know from uh, from you know a psychologist like you who have experience if there is anything. Uh, substantially, um, uh, basically uh, researched on on basis of gut feeling or intuition, mm-hmm. and uh, I I hear yeah. you saying that uh, really we need to be very careful about. That. Yeah, you know, even in, in hearing you, you what you were saying, um, you know, it, it's almost this idea we have to. It might sound almost funny, but even to be skeptical of ourselves in a way, you know, we might think we know something, we definitely felt this, or we definitely saw this, or I definitely remember, even our memory is very fallible. Um, You know, just last night I was at dinner with a a group of friends and my friend was like, oh, let me say the story. And then my friend was like, oh, my sister was there. And when, when the friend finished the story, my other friend was like, oh, my sister said the story totally different, but they were at the same event and had totally different accounts to the same exact incident um, because of their, you know, all the things that are going on. But let me say this. So, you know, you're talking about gut feeling itself and trying to differentiate that. We don't know exactly what that is, but our physical sensations play a big part in what we think about an emotion. We think of them as separate sometimes, but our physical state is always part of our emotional state, how you're feeling. Just like I was saying that story of the author of the book you're reading. Um, but she also describes this other study that I've brought up a few times, which I think is so fascinating. And it's interesting when you use the word gut feeling, because in a way it has to do with the stomach. But it was looking at judges who had to make decisions about parole. They were doing parole hearings. And they found that when they were closer to lunchtime, and it meant they were hungrier, they were much more negative in their judgments. And so in that case, we can say their gut feeling, in a way their gut was telling them something, some feeling of discomfort, and they thought that feeling of discomfort was about the person rather than their physical sensations. Now, I'm sure if you ask those judges, and especially judges who are, you know, they praise themselves and pride themselves on being rational and not emotional, they would say it has nothing to do with the fact that they're hungry because they found that after lunch they went back to like the regular rate of accepting the paroles but we're not aware of that and so we have to accept that we try our best to be aware of what's going on to be in touch with ourselves to recognize what's what's happening the best that we can but that we're going to make mistakes all the time and we have to be a little bit skeptical even of ourselves so we say you know what i'm having this gut feeling that that person's a jerk and you could be right, but you also could be wrong. And I wouldn't take that as there's some, for me personally, that my intuition has to be right. You know, I'm a psychologist and I work with clients and I think I'm pretty good at noticing things, but still I get things wrong all the time. And I recognize that. And I try not to get too attached to it because we also know that once we think we know something, 
there's something like confirmation bias where I'm going to look for that thing. So if I say, oh, this person has such and such diagnosis, I'm sure of it after just like two minutes. And then they say things that disprove what I'm saying. I'm going to totally ignore that and look for information to confirm what I'm saying. And if I go with my quote unquote gut, it might lead me down the the wrong path. And even they've done research on psychologists where they found that once they set themselves on a diagnosis, even when they started presenting them information that should disconfirm that, they still didn't change their diagnosis. They didn't take in that new information. So, you know, there's a few issues we're talking about here. One is what is even gut feeling and intuition? It's hard to define that. But also in that book you're talking about, uh, for me, it was this idea of recognizing how much of our emotional experience and our thoughts we construct rather than this idea that we are just a vessel that feels things, you know, oh, there's, I just had this experience, not recognizing how much we ourselves are constructing our experience. So when we think we know something for sure, or I felt something for sure, it is good to be a little bit skeptical of that, even though it's our own experience, recognizing there isn't some truth that I'm definitely feeling or thinking. It's just my thought. Even going back to what I was saying today, I'm having the thought that, or I think I'm feeling this right now, but it's not a hundred percent fact. All what we were just talking about, and uh, it dawned on me how, uh, as human beings, we are uh, so incomplete and we know nothing, (laughs) not even about ourselves as much. And the more we talk about it and the more I read about it and the more I hear about it, I I come to realize we are nothing but dust in the wind and there is not much that we really know except for at this point, at this moment, I'm here, I'm talking, and that's it. Yeah, and, and even that, you know, we don't have to get philosophical. Even with that, we can we can talk, we can debate possibly. <laughs> but, you know, but, but you're right. You know, it's kind of uh, one of those things, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And then also, the more you actually start to learn about human beings and the more we're researching, we see that the less we know. You know, we used to think um, we knew everything and even we understood everything and you know, one of the things that actually has helped science advance is this idea of ignorance that I don't know, we don't know, and we ask questions. But when we come from a place that I know, we actually start learning a lot less and our understanding becomes limited. So yeah, we do have to accept that it's not that we necessarily know nothing, but yeah, anything we're talking about, it's the best that we understand it now. I'm sure if in a hundred years from now, someone listens to our conversation right now, science will have advanced so much that there's so much that we're talking about that they would maybe even laugh about because they understand it so much better than we do now. And then a hundred years after them, they'll do the same thing to them. So we're trying to understand more, but also part of our understanding should come with this um, almost humility that we, we understand very little or even what we think we know, we can't fully be sure of. And we have to just, I think, just accept that as the reality. Such a great pleasure to take all that responsibility off our shoulders. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> I mean, I feel so free when I know I don't know. Right, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not sure, that, you know, that uh, how would I ever feel um, comfortable if I think I know this and I know that. There are certain things that, you know, yes, you, you need to know. For example, you need to know that you're going out the door, you need to lock your door. You need to know that you lock your door. Above and beyond that, the reality <laughs> of things can be changed. Yeah. Oh, even what you're even what you're seeing as you walk out the door, you might think you know it much more than you do. But in that book, you're actually reading and talks a lot about 
uh, our senses, even in how we think we we know what we're seeing and feeling, but that that itself can be illusion. We're predicting it a lot more times than we're actually just seeing and and feeling. But I do have to wrap up the show. I appreciate you calling. Hope you have a good night. Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank have you. a Take, great night. Thank Bye-bye you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. All right, we've reached the end of the show. Again, the book for this week is The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Thank you to our caller and all the listeners and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.